Good morning. My name is Keith Brault, and I'm one of the pastors here at the Church of the Incarnation. And if you have your Bible this morning, please turn to Isaiah chapter 35. One of the challenges for us, for me, probably for most of us, in opening a text like Isaiah 35 is that it's a poem. It's written more like a song, more like a poem than as a logic problem or a logic statement. So the truths that are contained here, they're, they're present, they're in longhand, right? So, um, so if Paul was writing the truths that are in Isaiah 35, it could be done probably in three or four verses. In fact, uh, as I was thinking on this, consider chapter 3 of Colossians. And you can turn there if you want, but I'll just read this. In four verses, listen to what Paul says. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Pretty short. Paul is touching on a lot of things. He's contrasting what it would be like for us to seek our life here on earth compared to setting our minds on things that are above. And he gives us the rationale because because of the work of Christ, and if we've put our trust in Him, we've died with Christ and have actually been hidden in Christ with God. That's, that's where, what Paul is saying. That's your actual identity. That's your location um, in the sense of being uh, in union with Christ. Well, Isaiah brings much the same message, or maybe more correctly, God brings much the same message to us this morning in this chapter of Isaiah, but he does it not that way that we just heard in the epistle. He does it again through this song, through this poem. And insofar as it is a poem, it, it drives to our affections differently than, than the truth statements that Paul lays out so crisply in Colossians. Isaiah, by using the language that he uses, by, by conjuring the, the metaphors and the word pictures that he uses, he drives at our affections and he, he causes us to see and feel desolation. Where Paul just says, don't set your minds on things of earth. Isaiah actually kind of double clicks on that and, and we see these vivid images of the earth. And what would it be like if we sought our life here? But he also, he also unveils this beautiful uh, vision of what it would be like, what it will be like when God breaks into His creation and sets things right and brings life. So we're going to look at this chapter in Isaiah. And we're going to do it in a, a few different parts. The first is we're going to just observe the language. We're going to observe how Isaiah presents this dynamic contrast between this world and the world to come. Between this kingdom, God's creation and what we've made of it, our stewardship of it, 
as a, as a human race who collectively is going about stewarding this creation apart from God and not really warmly inviting His presence. How, what is God's assessment of that? And then in contrast, what, what is God going to do and how will the, this creation be restored? So let's do that. Let's look first at, at what is. And then we'll look at what will be. What is God's assessment of our stewardship, of our predicament without submission to God? What is God's assessment of the independent attainments of of humanism? What is God going to say to us here in terms of uh, the attainments of, of human genius? of our collective sense, and I'm not speaking about the church or the world, I'm just talking about humanity as a race and our systems and institutions as, as a general people. How does God view our sense of justice? How does God see the creation thriving or not thriving based on our intelligence and wisdom? So let's look at Isaiah chapter 35. And we're going to skim through and highlight these words that God uses as He describes it. In verse 1, chapter 35, there's a wilderness. There's dry land. The desert. In verse 2, we see that, that, that there's a glory and majesty in, in Lebanon and Sharon, but, but they aren't here yet. So there's that yearning. In, in verse 3, we see people described as having weak hands and feeble knees and anxious hearts. In verses 5 and 6, we see blindness and deafness and, and, and paralysis and, and the inability to articulate with our tongues. We again see wilderness and desert. In verse 7, we see burning sand and thirsty ground, a, a word that that conjures an image of no matter how much you pour into it, it won't be satisfied. It's continually uh, soaking up and absorbing whatever we can pour into it. In verse 7, describes a haunt of jackals. That's a, that's a phrase that's, that's depictive of such desolation of... Uh, that, that wild animals have moved in to occupy it. We, rent, uh, we rented a house. We've, we're in a house now that, um, that had been empty for some time, and it's in the woods. You know, it's way back in the woods. It's a log cabin, and it was funny. It's still funny. But you can lay in bed, and because it's a log cabin, there's no attic. And you can hear everything scurrying around on the roof and stuff. But when we first moved there you could hear all kinds of crazy stuff. I mean, there were squirrels and all kinds of stuff had made nests between the actual roof and then that, little, that small barrier between the roof and the, in, the inside ceiling. So when they had the roof changed, it, it, uh, it, it helped. But, but all that's to say, you leave a house vacant in the woods for three years or something, and what happens, right? It doesn't, it's not really an empty house. Um, <laughs> in the sense of, of animals that are happy to come and, and have shelter there. And so, the, the fact that, that God is seeing this world, the desolation of this world, and describing it, again, poetically, as, as uh, occupying jackals, the haunt of jackals, 
it doesn't speak to a thriving world, does it? He goes on in verses 8 and 9 to talk about foolishness and fools. Verse 9, that there are lions and there are ravenous beasts. In verse 10 at the end, the last line, there's sorrow and sighing. Isaiah is using this vivid language to help us feel. To help us feel what God sees. When He looks at a human race apart from Himself. When He looks at a human race stewarding to the best of their wisdom and ability and justice and stewarding His good creation without Him. This is the end game. And it's important for us, especially during Advent, and this is part of the point of Advent, is to feel that, isn't it? And to lean into that thirst. And to lean into that hunger. And to lean in then to that hope. And this helps us accurately to assess our own capacity to just continue on and to evolve and to attain some kind of goodness and righteousness and habitation and flourishing on our own. This helps us because the second part of this contrast, if this is what is, Isaiah then symmetrically, vibrantly shows us what will be. So let's go back through it again and just show some of the other sides of those pairs. So the wilderness and the dry land will be glad. Notice the use of the future tense verbs. This wilderness and this dry land will be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. Glory and majesty will be given to the land by God. He goes on in verse 5 to describe these people who are blind and deaf and, and paralyzed and mute as, as having their eyes opened and their ears unstopped and their, their paralyzed bodies transformed into those of leaping deer. And the mute singing for joy. He talks again about wilderness and desert and burning sand breaking forth with water. And the, 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 the burning, scorching sand becoming streams. The thirsty ground that used to be this bottomless pit of scorched earth where you could pour water and water and water into it and it would just absorb everything as if you'd done nothing. Now, that same ground, he says, is becoming, it's become a pool. Right? Something that's bubbling up and providing water rather than just consuming infinite effort and energy and water. So there's this beautiful transformation of what will be. If, if, if there's this, uh, this scorched earth, this scorched, perilous, inescapable wilderness on one side, once Isaiah is finished, once God is through with doing whatever He's going to do, it's going to be transformed into a place of perfect shalom. So that's the dynamic contrast that Isaiah depicts for us. Rather than being this desert where 
if you know anything about deserts, one of the things about a desert is it's very hard to navigate through it if it's a very sizable desert. If there's a road or a path, a sandstorm instantly, like a blizzard would, covers the path. So that one of the great perils of a desert is being lost in it and not being able to find your way out. When, when whatever happens in the future with these future tense verbs, whatever that thing is that happens, now there's going to be a highway in the desert, as you see in verse 8. So, so there's this dynamic contrast from death to life, from wasteland to oasis. And the question, one of the first questions that comes to our mind reading this is, how, right? Um, how does this transformation happen? We see the answer in verse 4, which is the hinge of this whole prophecy, this whole chapter of prophecy. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And and before that, at the end of verse 2, they shall see the glory of the Lord. They shall see the glory of Yahweh and the majesty of our God. So what's going to be the difference? What do we as human beings need? The answer here is that we need God. As we evaluate our world and we think about weak hands and feeble knees, as we think about sorrow and sighing, as we grow weary in waiting for God or hoping, we get our hopes up that that somehow this world is going to, on its own, improve, but It's difficult. I'm not saying that there haven't been massive strides taken and that there haven't been significant individuals raised up by God that have made a real difference. Right? I mean, our society has improved by God's grace. What we're talking about here, though, what Isaiah is talking about is what is necessary for this real shalom to happen. Are we going to get there from here without God? And he's saying, no, what's going to happen that's going to create this massive, dynamic transformation, restoration, is that Yahweh Himself is going to enter creation. That's what we're hoping for. The Isaiah prophet is saying, this will happen. Yahweh Himself is going to come here. This is 700 years before the birth of Jesus. This is 700 years before John the Baptist is calling out to prepare prepare the way. 700 years before Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Isaiah is saying that this God, Yahweh, whose glory no one could see, not even Moses, God had to place Moses in a special place and and do certain things so that Moses wouldn't see the full beauty of God's glory, lest Moses die. When God was leading His Israelites through the desert, He appeared to them, His glory appeared to them, but it was always veiled, wasn't it? You could see it in part. You knew it was there. You knew that this is Yahweh. It's no one else. 
by the pillar of fire. You knew that this was Yahweh by the pillar of cloud. You knew that God was with His people in the tabernacle because there, there may have been some Shekinah glory above the temple. But what Isaiah is talking about is different than that. He's saying the full splendor, the full potency of God's glory is going to break in to the earth. Yahweh is going to come to His creation. And when He does, the wilderness is going to explode with life. And the desert is going to explode with water. And where there was no way for us to find our way home, now there's going to be a highway in the desert. Yahweh is going to come, Isaiah says. And on this side of Jesus' life and ministry and death and resurrection, on this side of being called into His family and baptized into His body, we can attest to part of this prophecy. We can say that that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is that highway who's come to us. Out of us even, who were once parched and lifeless, spring rivers of living water because of the gift of His Spirit. We can look at this highway and through the ages we can see where men and women who've been baptized into Christ and raised up by Him have, have run their race and finished it and made a massive difference in irrigating this world. And we also identify with the original audience of this prophecy who were on the brink of exile having this promise given to them that was based on their return one day from exile. We can also look in and enter into their yearning that one day Christ will come again and this will com be completed. We won't be on the highway home anymore. The whole world will have been reconciled to God. So how will this happen? How will this transformation happen? We see that it will happen as God Himself, Yahweh Himself, with the full potency of His glory, comes into this world. And what, what creation, what created world can contain that kind of glory? There isn't one. And that's the beauty of this song, right? I mean, he's using language that's, that's intimating or Im implying that when God comes in all of His glory, there's nothing that will contain His beauty. There's nothing that will contain His splendor. There's nothing that will contain His life. There's nothing that will contain His capacity and His intense desire and determination to satisfy everyone with water and food and joy and life and hospitality. The world won't contain it. It will be breaking forth everywhere all the time. That's what we yearn for. That's, the, that's what our hearts are made to know. However happy our home lives are, however satisfying our jobs are, whatever good news might be happening around the world or peace treaty that gets signed or anything, our hearts are built to yearn for this. Yahweh, come. Yahweh, come. 
And that's what this song, this poem is, is I believe, designed by God to, to stir up in our hearts. So how does God do this? We've seen. Another question that comes from this text is how? Or I'm sorry, um, who? Who gets included in this? And that's something that comes to my mind as I read it. And this sounds like, this sounds great, right? This sounds beautiful. Who gets included? And we see this in several different ways, and it's, it's a beautiful aspect of this prophecy. We've already seen in verse 3 that, that insofar as Isaiah needs to give this command, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. We see there explicitly that God is calling those who are weary. Feeble hands and weak knees, they they indicate a weariness in well-doing. A weariness in fighting. A weariness in continuing to faithfully put one foot in front of the other. Maybe a weariness in fighting temptation. Maybe a weariness in, in fighting for obedience in just simple ways. Saying prayers. Reading the Scriptures. Asking God for mercy. Really engaging the confession of sin when we're here worshiping. Those sorts of things. Just weary of them. He's saying of us, don't be surprised. Don't lose heart. Because you're weary, because your knees are weak, because your heart is anxious. And he's not just telling us to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, he's pointing us how God is coming. Let's continue to run the race with endurance. Let's continue to throw off every sin that so easily entangles us. Let's keep running toward this Christ who's coming back, but even now is is among that great cloud of witnesses who's beckoning us to keep running our leg of the journey with perseverance. Because He's coming again. It's more than that though. We can see in that verse the weak and the feeble and the anxious. But we also see here later in the text the vulnerable. Maybe those who have been injured. We, we see a hostile land full of Lions and ravenous beasts and jackals. Perhaps the most incredible person named or type of person named who's included is here at the end of verse 8. Talking about this highway and talking about those who belong who it belongs to. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. Who is included? Who is God calling? Who is God going to bring home? It's the people that we've spoken about, but it's, it's even all the way out here to the fool. 
If you are a fool who has been redeemed and ransomed by God and placed on this highway, you will make it to Zion and you will be crowned with joy and you will sing forevermore. Not because you learned how to not be a fool anymore, but because that's the power of His grace. That's the, deter- that's the determination of His redeeming love to people like us. People like us who on the King's Highway may hit every single possible guardrail on the way home. Isn't that encouraging? I mean, the commentators are saying this word is depicting someone who given half a chance is going to mess up. God is coming to make all things new. And He's bringing... He's, it's, the, the text is clear that not everyone is going to be on this highway. right? At least not so far as Isaiah is telling us right here. But it is telling us this. Anyone can be on it. Anyone can be on it. There's nobody to whom this can't apply. And so how do we get included if 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 we if we believe that we can be how how does isaiah instruct us or how does he encourage us and really mostly he just encourages us he does do some instructing and we'll get to that but mostly he's just going to inform us that this is a highway in verse 8 a highway shall be there And where does it lead? Well, we see that in verse 10. That it's leading home. It's leading home. Zion. A highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. It's not the way of purity. So that would indicate it's the way where anyone can come as long as you've cleaned up really well and gotten a fresh shave and cleaned underneath your fingernails and you belong here based on your your merit. That would be bad news, right? And it would go against everything that he's been saying. But it's not the way of purity. It's the way of holiness. He's not discouraging purity, but his point is this will be called the way of holiness. It will be for anyone who the Lord has set apart to be on it. Anyone who, according to God, belongs there. And and the unclean shall not pass over it. Those who have not been set apart shall not. So there's this very, very thin, I mean, binary uh, inclusion clause here. It's if you have been set apart to be on it, you will be on it. If you haven't been set apart yet to be on it, you won't be on it. That's it. And we've seen, we've already talked about how this is Christ. This is Jesus, is this highway. But he goes on to say, this highway shall belong to those who walk on the way. The word in that sentence that's up in the mix is belong. So it's it's kind of redundant that they're walking on the way already. We've already covered that. But this is important. This highway will belong to you. Again, this is pointing to Jesus. If, if Jesus has redeemed you, as, if Jesus has ransomed you, then you belong in Christ. But this is 
phenomenal. But Christ, the highway, also belongs to you. He really is a gift from God to humanity. He really is a gift from God to this broken world. He really is a gift from God to people. To individual people. He gave His only begotten Son. This is great news. Not only has God brought me into a place where I can come home, but this way home, He's saying, Keith, this belongs to you. There's no way to get our heads around that without worshiping God for His grace. I did not earn this. Left to myself, there's no way I belong here. But God has determined to love me this way. He's determined to love you this way. He's determined to love the world this way. There's this repetition throughout that really comes to a crescendo here in these final few verses of shall. It's this this word that drives home God's sovereign intention. This is the way it will happen. This will be done. Listen to some of these usages of it. A highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. Again, that resonates isn't it, with, with earlier in the book. His name shall be called. Wonderful. Counselor. Add this to the list. Jesus is our way of holiness. He has a name. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there. But the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return. This is not up in the air, is it? Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. These are determined from God's throne. These are decreed. This will all happen. God is going to do this. And God, as we look back, has already done much of this in sending Christ in enabling us to hear Christ preached in the Holy Spirit's work to open our hearts to receive Him, to be baptized into Him, to be brought from life to death. And all of this prophecy shall come to completion. This reminds me altogether of the words that Jude closes with when he says, to the only or now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the glory of His presence, blameless with great joy. A summary of the grace of God that we find here. It's not whether or not I 
have earned a place to stand in God's presence blameless with great joy. It's not a question of if I've cleaned myself up sufficiently to stand in the presence of the glory of God blameless with great joy. It's the fact that my Savior, Jesus Christ, will make me stand in the presence of His glory blameless with great joy. If Jesus has come and called us, and if we found ourselves in Him, then He belongs to us. And this road to Zion, this, this pathway home, this highway of holiness belongs to us. And God will make us persevere on it. He will make us continue. As we celebrate, as we continue to celebrate the Advent season, we rejoice greatly that Christ has come. And we can set our minds on the fact, on the fact that He will come again and that all of this shall come to pass. May the Word of the Lord bless your hearts as we continue to think and meditate on it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.